Our scripture reading this morning is uh, in the book of Luke. We'll be starting in chapter 2, uh, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when uh, Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we have been uh, walking through certain passages in the book of Luke over the last few months, and here during this season of Advent, we are uh, turning back the pages into the first couple chapters of Luke, where we find so much of the story of Christ's birth, the uh, passage that we read today, read today being the actual telling of the birth of Jesus, and um, as we Uh, anticipate the approach of Christmas. We uh, want to participate in the long-held Christian practice of Advent, particularly because uh, we are often so quick to jump to Jesus is here, um, and we go right past the long, slow, even agonizing process uh, that God's people went through before Jesus showed up. Um, And so the season of Advent for us then as followers of Jesus is to um, it's to stop and observe how similar our world is uh, to the world of those who were awaiting a Messiah. Uh, there were long-held hopes and expectations that generation after generation after generation did not see fulfilled, right? People were, were born and grew up and were married and had children and then died and then their children grew up and were married. And generation after generation and after generation in this nation that God had called to himself and given these promises, uh, these, nation, or these generations uh, came and went, and the Messiah had not arrived. 
It was hundreds of years for them. And so we love Christmas, right? Christmas is, is jubilant and amazing and awesome. Um, but if all we do is focus on Jesus is here, uh, we are often missing how present the Lord is even with us in the waiting. Because today we wait, right? We are in this already but not yet reality where we know Jesus has come, but we know he is yet to come again, yet to come in his fullness, fullness, yet to bring the full resolution of all of the plan of God to restore a people back to himself. And so Jesus being born in a manger and everything that happens in this scenario uh, that we read today points us to this greatness of such a small one. And uh, I think the story of the waiting of the people of Israel also points us to this hope of a great one in the midst of a whole lot of disappointment. And so we're going to take a bit of a journey today through the kind of the, the, the nation of Israel's waiting and, uh, and what they had been looking forward to um, for centuries and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Um, and in God's gracious plan, uh, again and again, you saw this last week as Jason talked to us about Mary and her life, um, and we see it even in some of the story today, that, that, that time after time after time, the, the invasion, so, so to say, of the kingdom of heaven uh, is among those uh, whom are small and insignificant and seemingly should just be passed over because they, they just don't matter very much. Uh, and that's, that's the whole story of God's work in history, uh, that he continually moves in uh, the small and the lowly and the insignificant. Why? To bring about the greatness of Jesus, that the glory of God might shine brighter than all of the glories of mankind, uh, because we are dim uh, lights compared to the great shining light that is Jesus Christ. And so I just want to pray for us again, uh, ask God for his help this morning, and then we'll dive into Luke 2 um, and uh, look at all the smallness and the greatness uh, that's in our passage. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, We're grateful uh, for the gathering opportunity that we have, um, the remembrances that that we participate in uh, during this time. Lord, I pray that uh, the, even the smallness of us being here, the smallness of singing, the smallness of prayers, the smallness of reading, uh, the smallness of communion, just these simple acts um, that, that are often without fanfare, uh, that are regularly practiced in rooms, uh, big and small, uh, all across your entire globe. Um, and God, as we come to these different moments, we are pulled into a greater story that you are unveiling, and a, and a greater glory that is you above and greater uh, and more significant than us. And so, God, in all our smallness today, might you be glorified uh, in our personal smallness, even in our corporate smallness, God, even in our, um, in our, our Christian smallness. Um, God, would you show us the greatness of Jesus? Um, because we are too small to be made much of. Um, but Jesus is too great to be made little of, and so we want to make much of his name on this day and in all of our life. Uh, And so we need you for that, because we know so much of our human experience works in opposition to the idea of being small. Um, So Lord, would you open our eyes today to see where you might be working in us uh, to point us to Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Amen. So I'm going to read just a portion of what uh, Nathan just read. Often we read an entire thing, but I just want to start with verses 1 through 7. And we'll kind of glance at some different points here in, this, uh, in these 20 verses that we have today. So Luke 2, 1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar's, uh, Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, and all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph, that's the father uh, or the, the soon-to-be husband of Mary. Uh, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. And so we begin this, this story uh, by looking at kind of the, uh, the, the surrounding situation. So we've got a, an occupying force. We've got a Roman uh, reality that, that, that uh, the Jewish people are living under. Um, and, and we have a date stamp here from Luke um, talking about when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so we've got an idea of when this happens. Uh, this is tied to factual uh, evidence ridden uh, historical reality, um, as we know that Luke specifically tried to write his book according to, and so this is rooted in history, and we see the the uh, the timeline and, and the timetable for what's going on, uh, and we also see that Jesus um, has kind of this this uh, dual um, home thing going on, right? So Joseph and Mary are actually in Nazareth, in Galilee, uh, which is up in kind of the northern area of of the kingdom. And they have to journey south and head to Bethlehem, which is basically a suburb of Jerusalem. Um, and a lot of times you'll hear the Bible say they traveled up to Jerusalem or up to Bethlehem. Um, and the reason for that is because they didn't look at maps like us and say, well, if I'm going to go to the amazing land of Minnesota, I go up to Minnesota because that's north. Um, you don't do that in, uh, in this era of history. Uh, what you do is you talk about your travels by way of uh, ascension and descension according to um, sea level. Okay, and so Jerusalem's the highest point in the country. Bethlehem is also kind of in the hill country. Galilee is around a lake. There's a big lake called the Sea of Galilee, actually. Um, Nazareth is near that. So to go to these places, they have to go up. Okay, that's why they say up. If that ever confused you. So they go up to Bethlehem. Why? Why do they go to Bethlehem? Because Joseph comes from the long family line of David, right? And so actually in John 4, there's an argument between a bunch of people, and they're arguing about the origin of Jesus because Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the sent Messiah. And all these people are like, wait a minute, how can he be the Messiah? No Messiah comes from Galilee. No Messiah comes from Galilee, right? And then some of the people argue, but wait a minute, no, his family's from Bethlehem. So there was actually kind of this dual home that Jesus had. His family home was Bethlehem. The place of his birth was Bethlehem. But the place where his family lived was Nazareth. Does that make sense? It's kind of this interesting beginning for Jesus. And the prophecy that we'll read in a minute from Micah speaks to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, the ruler that is promised to come, will actually have, its, have his origin in Bethlehem, okay? So this is crazy. God uses Rome, right? And a governor, Quirinius of Syria, and this whole need for a census, he uses all of that reality 
to bring about his prophesied coming of the Messiah. He says hundreds of years before Jesus comes, the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, right? And also there are promises about him being of Nazareth. And through this random moment where the census has to happen and Joseph at the very time when Mary's about to have a baby has to go and register with his family in Bethlehem, through all of that stuff, God is at work to fulfill his promises to bring the Messiah, right? This helps us to see, again, that God's work in the world is through the organization and the, the, the activity and sometimes the seeming random chaos of human history, right? All of these things are exactly according to the sovereign plan of a good God. How is this significant for us? This is significant because, listen, right now, where you are, where you've been, the stumbling journey you've took to this place, the decision that that guy made to not hire you or that woman made to fire you or those people made to choose you for the scholarship at that school instead of that one or the internship there or the move that your parents made 25 years ago here or, right? All of this stuff is exactly according to the plan of God. Always, always. God is over and in and above and through and with you no matter what's going on, right? So this helps us in the regrets of our life. <laughs> this helps us in the should-haves and could-haves and would-haves of our life. This helps us in the failures or in those catastrophic moments that caused a sudden detour for our life to take a radical direction change. Why did that happen? Because it was according to the plan of God, right? And if you didn't hear Jason talk about this last week, the blessing that was on Mary's life, the chosenness that she had, the favor of God upon her life, it was glorious in abundant and realistic ways, but also painful and wrought with shame and hardship. She was a pregnant teenager, unwed in ancient Israel. Talk about awkward. She struggled even though she was chosen and blessed by God, right? And so be at peace, child of God. The Lord is with you. But it's hard, yes. But I missed out, yes. But I could have, would have, should have, yes. And you are right in the palm of the hand of the Lord. Amen? We need that today. One of the most amazing things about this story is the smallness as I mentioned a minute ago. Mary, small. Joseph, small. Right? A manger, small. No fanfare. No grand entrance. Right? Nothing spectacular to speak of. Just a baby. A little thing. Unnoticeable. Not very powerful. And this is the entrance of the kingdom of God. Wayne Grudem says that the greatest miracle in the history of the world, the eternal son of God being born as a man, happens quietly in a stable in an obscure village in Judea. Quietly in a stable in an obscure village in Judea. 
And so to look continually at this story of smallness, I want to go all the way back in time to about a thousand years previous to this moment in history. And that thousand year backwards journey is to go look at the beginning of the significance of Bethlehem. Okay? Bethlehem was a nowhere, was a no place, was an insignificant little town uh, that didn't matter. And at the time that Bethlehem kind of gets its first notable human being, uh, we have this prophet named Samuel who's living in a time of the judges when the kingdom of, of uh, Israel has kind of gotten its land, but they don't have a ruler yet. And so there's all these different judges that rise and fall and try to help to lead the people. And in the midst of that kind of chaotic um, kingdom birthing, uh, the people groan and moan and are like, ah, why don't we have a king, right? And God speaks to Samuel and says, my people are complaining because they don't have a king. And they look at all the nations around them and they're like, you know, Moab has a king and Egypt has a king and Samaria has a king. And all these places have kings and we got nothing. And God's like, well... I'm your king, uh, but you've rejected me as king. You don't want to follow me as your king. And so, all right, I'm going to give you a king. And he gives them King Saul. And King Saul becomes a giant headache, right? He's this kind of egotistical guy who doesn't think anybody likes him. And so he tries to be all big and puff and cool. Um, and he does a bunch of really stupid stuff and uh, disobeys God's voice outright. And Samuel gets to this place where he's just like, oh, stupid move. Why is Saul the king? Um, and at that moment, God speaks to the prophet Samuel and tells him, hey, man, stop. Don't worry about this whole Saul thing. Uh, I'm going to send you to anoint a new king. Okay. And so in 1 Samuel 16, uh, Samuel is sent to Bethlehem to go see this guy named Jesse, who's got a family there. And uh, when he goes there, he's told he's going to find the new king to anoint him. And so he goes to Bethlehem and he invites Jesse and his sons to go have a sacrifice uh, of a cow before the Lord. And then in 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 13, I want to read this. And we see what goes on in this situation with uh, Samuel and the sons of Jesse. So... It says when they came, as in they're going to the sacrifice, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Eliab's one of the sons, he looks at him and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, uh, but the Lord looks inside to the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass, before, or pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And so all the sons that Jesse brought with him, all the sons that were worth bringing on this trip to the sacrifice, the Lord passes over every single one of them, every single one that would have significance. The older brothers, the more bigger brothers, the stronger brothers, the more experienced brothers. God passes all of them. And then Samuel finally says to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? Did, did you bring everyone? Because I'm, I'm not finding the king. And, and then Jesse tells him there remains yet the youngest, the smallest. But behold, he, he's, he's keeping the sheep. <laughs> 
We've left him to the unimportant stuff and didn't really think it'd be worth bringing him to sacrifice. We've got him over there doing the menial tasks. He's the young little one. And Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him. But we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took uh, the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and, David, or, and Samuel went up to Ramah. And so we see in this situation that everyone who seems to be the one that should be chosen, uh, they're in fact the ones that are passed over. And so in this little town of Bethlehem, God points out the smallest son to be anointed as king. And we know what kind of a king David becomes. He becomes the greatest king that the nation ever sees. And in 2 Samuel, moving forward about 25 years or so, we see this promise that God makes to this smallest son from this family that's out of this insignificant village. And God's promise to him is that he will do great things with him. And so 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 7, verse 18, it says this, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instructional for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our eyes. And so from the point where David was anointed king up until this point, David was given significant victories over the enemies of God. He's able to expand the kingdom of God geographically and spread out its borders and make this nation greater and greater. And then God comes to David and makes a promise and he says, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. He says, one day someone will come from you and will rule forever and ever and ever. And David's response is, what what is this greatness? I'm so small. My family is so insignificant, right? The place that I come from is not a big place. What, What is all this greatness that you are doing? And he ends this little prayer here in 2 Samuel 7 by saying, And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may be continual uh, forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And so David acknowledges this fact that God brings this blessing on him even though he doesn't deserve it. And he makes these great promises to David even though he doesn't deserve it. And he says, if this kingdom's going to be built the way you're saying it's going to be built, it's going to be you who builds it because... I'm not great. I can't build it myself. And later in David's life, we find that he starts to lose track of his smallness. (laughs) 
he falls into sin thinking that he can relax, thinking that he doesn't have to uh, hold tight onto these promises of God and destruction ends up coming into his house. He has a son who betrays him and things kind of go haywire. And from that point where things go haywire, God's promise starts and continues to endure. And God holds himself faithful to what he promised to David, even though David isn't faithful. And even though David's sons aren't faithful. And even though all the kings that come from the lineage of David aren't faithful. God continues to say, I will fulfill my promise even though you are not being what you said you would be what I asked you to be, what I encouraged and laid down the law for you to be. And so we see this long history of a people who go through these mountains and valleys. Occasionally a good king pops up, but most of the time we've got these bad kings. And this nation that was supposed to be great, this nation that was supposed to be significant in the eyes of the world, continues to kind of shrivel up. And little by little, opposing kingdoms come into this kingdom and kind of chisel away at it. Sometimes making war, sometimes taking people away into captivity. Little by little, this happens until finally one day, the great city of Jerusalem actually falls. The great place where David's throne resided, where the temple of God was, was constructed, that city actually falls and the people of God are lost. They think, we were supposed to be great. We were supposed to be significant. We were supposed to make history. And now we're decimated. We're gone. We've been eradicated. People are taken off into captivity. And the nation lies in ruins and the city crumbles. And lately as I've been reading the scriptures, I've actually been reading in the, uh, in the Old Testament minor prophets uh, don't tell them they're minor, but the, 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 the smaller prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. And all of, these, all of these men prophesied around the time that Jerusalem was either about to fall or had fallen. And so they're talking continually about this moment that's about to take place. And they're coming to confront evil kings and they're coming to say, listen, you need to turn from your evil ways, otherwise God's going to stop being merciful and he's going to bring judgment on this land. Right? And little by little, that moment approaches when finally God says, enough's enough. I, I, I've had enough with this evil. I've called you my people. I've given you my law. I've told you this is how I, I, I am to be honored amongst your midst. And, and yet, what do you do? You pursue the gods of other nations. You seek riches at the expense of the poor. You actually oppress people instead of serve them and love them. And finally, God says, enough but what's beautiful in the midst of every one of these prophecies is that God says turn from your wicked ways or I'm going to bring judgment and then often he pronounces judgment is going to happen and then in the midst of the judgment he gives hope he gives hope again and again and again and one of those guys that prophesied during this time was a was a man named Micah Micah prophesied about 800 years before Jesus was born Okay? And Micah's telling the people they need to turn back to God, otherwise bad things are going to happen. And in the midst of this prophecy, he lays out a hope. He says, I am going to judge my people. The city is going to crumble and fall. Right? It's a couple hundred years before it even crumbles and falls, and he tells them this. 
I'm going to take people away into captivity, but there's going to come a leader. One day, out of you, even though you've been shrunk down, beat down, decimated, almost wiped from the face of the earth, even though that's going to happen, I'm, I'm going to bring a leader. I'm going to raise up a leader for you. And listen to what the prophecy says about this leader. This is Micah 2, starting in verse 5. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, this ruler that comes from Bethlehem, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Micah says judgment is coming, and the nation will fall, but a ruler is coming. This ruler is from of old, from ancient of days. It's a strange thing to say about a ruler. It speaks to the reality that he comes from the ancient times of Israel, even before eternity or in eternity past. He says this ruler will come forth and be a shepherd. He will have majesty and he will, he will give them peace. And one of the beautiful things that he says about this ruler is that this ruler will be great. And so Jesus, being born in Bethlehem, fulfills these promises from these Old Testament prophets hundreds of years before saying, even though you've been shrunken down, even though you've been decimated, even though you've been spread amongst the nations, even though you thought your nation was going to become great and it became small, still yet I will send you a Savior. And that Savior is Christ the Lord. And so from the small place of Bethlehem, from the small king named David who became great and then lost sight of God's greatness, from the nation that was great but began to shrink and crumble and fall by the wayside, from those people would raise up one who would be great. And we see that this great one is born in a manger, in an ignorable place, in an ignorable city once again, yet God is sure to tell of the greatness of the coming of the king, right? Because what do we read in, in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, that there's these shepherds that are out in the field. <laughs> Again, we have small people, shepherds, right? Like David, ah, he's over, hey, just over with the sheep. David's over with the smelly sheep. We have shepherds, again, and they're just doing their humdrum, normal, day-in, day-out job, right? Ready to go to sleep under the stars, you know, just out there with the smelly sheep, not a lot of pay, not a lot of fanfare. And what happens? An angel choir shows up to sing to shepherds. 
Are you kidding me? The glory of the Lord shows up to nobodies? What's going on here, right? God is repeating the story. He's saying, this is good news, and who am I going to tell it to? The king in the palace? No. The emperor in Rome? No. The priests in Jerusalem? No. I'm going to tell it to shepherds on a hill, the nobodies. He comes and declares the good news. The angel says, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This news will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. God repeats the story the insignificant, the lowly, the small ones are those who are announced this good, glad tidings. This continues in the ministry of Jesus. We've seen it in Luke. We're going to continue to see it in Luke. He pays attention to children. He stops and has conversations with women, which in Jesus' day as a Jew was not really something that would happen, especially a Jewish teacher would not do something like that. Right? He spends time with those who nobody else will touch. He pursues those that are on the extreme outsides. He's welcoming tax collectors and prostitutes. This is the kingdom of heaven in our faces showing us that the good news is for the lowly. And so these shepherds go and they see the baby Jesus, and when they see him, they make known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. What saying is that? They say, hey, listen, these angels showed up, and the guy told us that this baby born here in Bethlehem is the Savior. He's Christ the Lord. Right? They deliver that news and they have a moment of confirmation among all of the news that's been spreading. And so this small baby from this small family being born in this small village is the greatest thing the world has ever seen. This is God's pattern of showing us how his kingdom comes. Though the world would tell you, seek greatness. Right? Though the world would declare to you, it is up to you to find significance, to make your mark on this world, right? To prove to those people that said you're nothing, that actually they're wrong, you're something, right? To earn that affection or that approval or that affirmation that maybe you didn't get as a child or that felt so foreign to you is. You were going through those terrible middle school and high school years. You were frowned on. Or maybe you lived in the limelight of popularity and acceptance. Maybe you had the praises sung to your name. Maybe you were honored. Maybe you were exalted. And you found yourself in a place where you've seen the emptiness of all of that. Right? Sometimes it takes a long time. But eventually, when we have all of this worldly fame, 
when we have all that the world promises will fulfill us and, and captivate our hearts and truly give us significance, we realize that it runs out, right? We see this repeatedly in the stories of people who reach uh, uh, academic prowess or, 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 or tabloid fame uh, or, or athletic uh, accolades, what, whatever it is, time and time again, and you sometimes want to shut them up, right? They come out and they say, I've had it all, I've got it all, and I'm empty, right? I, I've, I've found what everybody told me I should go get, and, and now that I have it, I'm alone. I don't have any real friends. I don't have any real meaning. I don't, I don't have any real peace. Or maybe they don't come out and say it in an interview or on the news or with social media, but they say it with their suicides, right? They say it when they've reached the top and end their own life because it was all a facade. Recently, I've been taken by the words of a song by Eminem. The song, Walk on Water, is just, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, talk about rapper fame. He's got it, has had it. Can you get any better than it, you know? And in this song, Walk on Water, if you haven't heard it, he talks about how he has this pressure to perform and it's, it's nearly killing him. How he writes the rhymes and he thinks he's dropping the beat and then he sits down in his car and he listens to it and he thinks it's all terrible. How he lives through the constant criticism of people screaming at him and telling him he's not as good as he used to be or he's doing things wrong and he's living in the limelight. And he can't fulfill the hype. He grows slowly toward a place where he'll be out of sight and out of mind. And he says in the lyrics, I might go out of mind. And the chorus says, I walk on water, but I ain't no Jesus. I walk on water, but only when it freezes. Why? Because I'm only human just like you. I've been making my mistakes. Oh, if you only knew. I don't think you should believe in me the way that you do because I'm terrified to let you down. Oh, if I walked on water, I would drown. I've had it all. I've had it all. Empty. That's what happens when we seek significance for ourselves. One more story from this Old Testament time around Jerusalem. I'm reading right now the book of Jeremiah. All right, I'm sorry, I read the book of Jeremiah last, last week. Anyways, Jeremiah is, a, is, is kind of a, an anthology type of a, a book. Um, it's a bunch of teachings and prophecies and stories from Jeremiah's life. And they're gathered and collected and um, put together cohesively by this guy named Baruch. Um, Baruch is significantly talented. Uh, he's very smart, um, well-educated. Uh, he's basically a scribe, uh, which in Jeremiah's day is, you know, top-notch uh, type of profession. Uh, and in Jeremiah 45, we have this small little moment where God gives a word to Baruch from Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah comes to his friend Baruch and, and he basically says, you know, you've really wanted stuff to go well. <laughs> you've really wanted success 
and accolade and fame. And what you've got is sadness as a constant companion. What you have is pain and sorrow all around you. You, you kind of cry out, God, God what, what is happening to me? And in the midst of this moment, God speaks a word straight into the heart of my soul when he says to Baruch, do you seek greatness? Seek it not. Right? Are you after your own fame here? Do away with that folly. Are you trying to build yourself a great kingdom? Set it aside. Right? And the tremendous news about that situation that though Baruch wanted some kind of fame and accolade and all he had was the writing and repeating of a story that nobody would listen to and then he watched Jerusalem fall and then he died. And we read his words. Right? We read his words. Because the greater story, the story that was unfolding at that time, because even Jeremiah promised a new day is coming with a new leader that's going to come. He's going to do something to transform your entire nation. That greater story that Baruch was a part of foretelling is the same story that lives on today. And so the smallness of Baruch is attached to the greatness of Jesus. And his life actually matters. The smallness of Derek, the unnoticeable, insignificant, wrought with pain and struggle and hardship life. That's what I get, and it's glorious, connected to the greater story of Jesus. If for one hour I can hold up the name of Jesus, for one person who had not yet heard it. I'm good. The kingdom lives on. And listen, so much of our anxiety, so much of our depression, I'm not saying depression's not real and chemical, I'm not saying that at all. So much of these sorrows that we drag through our lives are because we feel small. God, why can't I have that part, we say? Why, can't, why don't I get the successes? I just wanted to, I just wanted to do that, that one thing, and I keep failing, right? I just wanted my family to matter. I just wanted my town to be significant. I just wanted my job to make a difference. I feel so small. I feel like Mary. I feel like Bethlehem. I feel like Baruch. And the good news is you're better off a shepherd with the angels in God's glory. Insignificant but new and different because of the connection to the kingdom of heaven. It is only when we see this smallness and Jesus' greatness that we can live into the kind of commands in the New Testament that point to a people bringing honor and fame 
to Jesus. Something as simple as Romans 12, 16, which says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That's impossible if you're small trying to be big. You'll never be at harmony with anybody as long as you're trying to be big. Because your bigness will have to snuff out their bigness, so you've got to get bigger, and that's not harmony. Except the smallness. Do not be haughty. Oh boy, help me Jesus. Associate with the lowly. That doesn't happen when you're making your story big. Right? That doesn't happen. You can't associate with the lowly when you're concentrated on your popularity. You can't welcome in the reject when you're standing before others trying to attain notoriety. <laughs> oh, but when we're low, Jesus can love mightily through us. Jesus can love mightily through us. And so Christmas and Advent shows us the repeated story of the kingdom of heaven that glory will come through our smallness. Small, insignificant, sometimes mundane, unnoticeable, all for the fame of the great King Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are great. And the fact that greatness, that the eternal greatness of God came into the world in this tiny little package of a baby shows us so much about how you expand your kingdom, who it is that you work among, where your good news is proclaimed and heard and received. God, we need to see your greatness, and we can't see it when we're trying to build our own. And so, God, we'll, we'll seek after your kingdom first and know that you've made the promise to give us everything we need. God, forgive us for pursuing after the things that are wants, that we think are needs because we're trying to establish our greatness. Might we continue to humble ourselves and see that smallness, smallness is okay. In fact, it's preferable so much as your kingdom operates. And God, if you choose in your sovereign grace to give any one of us any significance at all, might we use it only to point to the significance of Jesus. God, may we not lose ourselves in things so as to pull away from your kingdom. May we not lose ourselves in the, the accolades or the popularity or the comforts of this world so as to shrink back from the, the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of your, of your kingdom. God, I've seen it happen over and over again. Lord, when we get so tied up in attaining greatness, we lose the real greatness of God. And we end up like Eminem, on top of it all, with regret and worry and fear because we've tried to make ourselves great. God, this is completely antithetical to the message of our world. We need your help even to hear it. We need your spirit if we are to live, to live it out. And we pray that you'd send us in power to do so so that Christ's name might be, known, might be known and made famous. In his name we pray, amen.